0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: If you could choose to squeeze the vibrancy and beauty out of every moment of your life, would you choose to do so? That is the question our guest today asks of us. She then brings us on a technique of how to do that, a technique she teaches to first responders, to veterans, and to anyone who wants to squeeze the most out of their lives. It is a great pleasure to welcome author of Neurosculpting, A Whole Brain Approach to Heal Trauma, Rewrite Limiting Beliefs, and find wholeness. Lisa Wimberger, welcome to the show.
0: So good to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about optimizing life.
1: So let's start with how you start the book. You were a healthy teenager, you didn't do drugs, you didn't drink alcohol, you didn't even smoke. And you were 15 when you had your first NDE, your first near death experience, and you experienced uh, an earth mother a lady called Zahara. I'd love if you take us through this as a context for how you got into this beautiful practice and technique of neurosculpting.
0: Yeah, you know, um, it's very interesting to have seizures. It's a very otherworldly experience, that kind that I had, you know, there's a moment when a seizure hits where you have a fraction of a second realization that the reality, your your consciousness is dissolving. It's going somewhere, and you don't know where it's going. And then all of a sudden, there's other. Now, for some people with seizures, like epileptics, perhaps that other is um, phasing, where your eyes, you know, get unfocused, but you're partially conscious, or maybe moments of forgetfulness. But for my seizures, this state of other was extremely rich. It was as though I instantly flipped into what I felt was reality. It just wasn't the one I was in. And as soon as I flipped, I no longer remembered the other reality I was just in. So it was only a fraction of a second where your whole body goes, "Uh uh-oh, what? And then all of a sudden you're just doing something. Now for me, I'd be laying there unconscious or in um, uh, bradycardia, which is where your heart gets so slow, so rapidly decreasing, right? That is a plummet and then you flatline. So I'd be in these moments physically, but emotionally and mentally, I'm somewhere else doing something, unaware that that's not happening. So it's in one of these episodes where I met this Entity called Zahara. And, you know, I want to couch this with, I'm an extremely grounded pragmatic person who loves science. So when I talk about these otherworldly experiences, it's because I, I experienced them. It's not, it's not, um, theoretical. It's something that I have in my memory and in my experience, which is why I get to talk about them. So I met this entity, um, you know, I, I just remember standing in this big open space and, um, this, uh, this character, this mother showed up. And the archetype in my mind was, you know, from my, you know, past Catholic upbringing, the archetype in my mind was, this is Mother Mary. And she introduced herself and said, you know, I am that for you, but I'm going to introduce you to The mother, the mother of all things, the mother of the universe. She's my mother. And I said, wow, Mary has a mother, you know? Okay. And this wave, this tremendous wave, it didn't even have a form. It felt like a tidal wave of deep blackness. And it was ominous. And it was mesmerizing. And it was cold. And it was scary, scary. And, but in, in a, not in, I'm, I'm in danger way, a scary in, I'm in the presence of something bigger than I can really comprehend right now way. And I, somewhere inside myself, I heard a voice that was her introducing herself. And she told me her name was Zahara. I had never heard the name before. And she told me she was going to teach me. About the universe, and she was gonna teach me um, about how to get well. And in that episode, I was having, I had this visceral sensation that I was exploding in a very violent, painful way. Now, this in real time might have been what was happening inside my body as I was seizing, right? So there's this bridge between what's physically happening, and this alternative reality that I'm in in a seizure space, right? I'm feeling the visceral uh, buzz that comes with a seizure, and I'm mapping it now onto this episode. So I feel all of this physical pain, explosive, and all of a sudden I'm shattered into millions of tiny little fragments of white light. And all of a sudden I realize that we're in the sky, we're in the universe. These are stars. I'm stars. I'm having this, who am I? What am I kind of experience? And she told me that, um, all of us human beings are little act like little tiny neurons in a much larger network. We think we're our own little individual. We think we're separate from everybody else. We're not. We're one neuron in a network of billions of neurons, and we need each other, and that if we tune in, we can actually start feeling each other. And so in this episode, she flooded me with empathic feelings of world pain, world hunger, disease, like all of the terrible things you never want to (laughs) feel. I was overwhelmed with those feelings, and then she allowed me to see joy and love and happiness. And, and all of this is likely unfolding in the course of a minute or two, because usually you recalibrate after a seizure after a couple minutes. And then I start coming to, and suddenly this space I'm in with Zahara, who's telling me, you need to learn how to heal. You need to understand the neurons, right? That's what she's telling me that starts to pixelate and fade. And then I have this very cognitively dissonant experience of, oh my God, I'm on the floor. I'm passed out. Oh, I'm on the tiles of my bathroom. Oh, I'm going to vomit. Oh, I'm not at all where I thought I was. And it's very disorienting. And, um, you know, Every seizure was like that, where it was some cosmic, weird, unfolding, I don't know what this means episode, but these episodes in this space that they were happening in stamped into my memory as though I were having real time experience, smell, taste, touch, sound, voice. Uh, messaging, these things are embedded stronger than 90% of my life's memories. So something's happening in that space where I'm having these episodes, where my experience is laying programming into my nervous system so viscerally that these are now considered high value memories by my neurology. So, so because they lingered, You know, in a dream, when you wake up and the dream goes away, these don't do that. These episodes stuck. And I could dive into them whenever I wanted and kind of peel them back even more. And these brought me little inspirations to go do things like study. Why am I having seizures? Why is this woman this mother telling me to go study neurons for my own healing. And then all of these like hidden messages would come out that took me years and years and years to uh, follow in the little rabbit holes that I was diving into.
1: It's beautiful. And, you know, I, I want to echo what you said about, I know you're pragmatic and I, I'm the same. Like I, I I like to understand the science behind things. I like to go looking after those things because I'd love them to be true, but backed by science. And the one thing I matched with what you wrote about, and you beautifully write it, I'll get to that in a second, is Nikola Tesla, David Bohm, uh, so many, Albert Einstein, so many of these, Stephen Hawking, so many of these amazing thinkers and scientists and brains of our world have all said, that's the secret to the universe, they all get to that point when they reach a certain point of intelligence. And sometimes science dismisses them as kind of going, ah, they've lost it, they've just gone a little bit too far. But they always said, that's the secret to the universe, this connection, the energy, etc, etc. So I just want to put that there and say, that is all these scientists have all found that you found it at a very young age. But what I loved, I mentioned the beauty of your writing, I loved how you Mix those experiences, those mystical experiences, with real science, because there, it's it's art and science coming together, and you explain these neuroscientific and neurophysical experiences so beautifully and so poetically that it actually makes it very attainable to learn these things like you talk about, you mentioned brachycardia there, where and you talk about the limbic system, and it goes fight, flight, freeze. And that's what you were experiencing. And one of the things you talked about was you when you went there, you made yourself a promise that I am going to bring that back and express it to the world and actually teach people. And that was your promise about bringing this book to us.
0: Absolutely. You know, I mean, these seizures happened from age 15 until my last seizure 13 years ago. So most of my life, um, these seizures were happening, but they were getting worse and worse. So with this particular, again, it wasn't epilepsy. It was a a maladaptive cranial nerve, vagus nerve, um, which I didn't know anything about. Mine was maladaptive based on Trauma and lifestyle and poor nutrition and everything else that plays into it. And um, what I realized was that the seizures were getting worse. I couldn't wake up from them. Used to be when I was a teenager, I'd have a seizure. I would get up. I'd brush myself off. I'd be a little bit, you know, woozy for a minute. And then I'd be okay. And then as they progressed, I wouldn't be okay. I couldn't stand up right away or I would vomit. And then as they progressed even more into my late adulthood, it was, I'm not able to get my heart regulated. I can't breathe regularly on my own. I can't move for hours. I have to lay in bed for a day. I cannot hold my bowels or my urine or my vomit. It was these kinds of things. So they were getting, I was in training to getting better and better at better at seizures. I was learning and teaching myself how to do it really well. And what I was doing really well was freezing. I was using my 10th cranial nerve, my vagus nerve in a maladaptive way, whose job it is, is to make you go inward, to quiet down your heart, to slow your breathing, and to stop you from feeling viscerally the world around you in a way to anesthetize you. It's what animals do in the wild just before they're about to be eaten. An animal that is freshly attacked will suddenly freeze. And that freeze is um, a protective response. I'm about to be eaten and I don't really want to feel that. So I'm going to freeze. I'm going to depress my nervous system and I'm going to dissociate profoundly so that my death is not that painful compared to what it could be. And so humans do this too. It's, it's the freeze response. But if you get really good at freeze, freeze gets really good at the play dead option and that gets believed by your nervous system. So vasovagal syncope is fainting, but vasovagal seizures is that to its extreme degree where your heart's stopping and you're not really recalibrating. So to get back to answer your question, the last seizure I had, which was by far the worst I had ever had, it was the kind where I wasn't recalibrating on my own. Had I been alone, I probably would be dead. My husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, was sitting next to me, pushing on my chest, making sure I, you know, shaking me when I stopped breathing. And and that's where I was negotiating. I was somewhere in between my episode space, my physical space. And I was this sense of myself looking at myself saying, that body is in a lot of pain. I'm not going back. This is so easy over here. It's peaceful. I don't want to go back there. And then I had this, this, um, memory. Whoa, whoa. I have a little daughter upstairs in the crib and a man right here who loves me, who's trying to keep me alive. I, I probably should go back, but I'm only going to go back if, and this is where I bartered with whoever. God, universe, what? whoever is up there, maybe nothing's up there, but I was bartering. And I said, if I go back to that pained, maladaptive body, I am never having another seizure again. And I'm going to take every bit of inspiration that I've learned over the years, and I am going to put it into action to heal myself. And that's what I had to do. And that's where. I really dove into the neuroscience of this is going to make or break me, my life. And I had no intention of creating a modality in a school and all of these things. I was like, I need to fix this. And when I fix this, I have to commit to sharing this then with the world because it works. And so that's what happened is I ended up creating this five-step process using myself as a guinea pig stopping my seizures and that's when i said okay i can't go back on the barter i bartered and said i would i would commit myself to this life if it works
1: the steps are so actionable it's not it's not highfalutin in any way it's actually quite uh, actionable and what i love about what you said there is you were training yourself at getting better better at the thing you didn't want and i often think about that there's a saying i don't know where it came from but it's like worrying is praying for what you don't (sighs) want and we we do that with so much of our mental processes, you know, the whole idea of myelination, we rerun the worry, the rerun the worry, and then that becomes life for us because we've made that the lens. But you go, What about we rewrite that? What about we recognize what that is? We, we don't, and, and what I, I love what you said is you don't need to know why you have it. You don't even know, do you want to get it better or do you want to know why you have it in the first place? But you do actually bring us back to some of the experiences of how they've been written in the first place. One of the ones I absolutely loved was when you battled to go to Germany when you were only <laughs> a kid. And and I thought this, but this is what I love about you use story to to tell the science so it's not academic, but it's infused with the academia, it's infused with the neuroscience. And you talk about when you're in a new experience like that. And we've had this on the show before talking about dopamine, for example, you're experiencing a new experience of a new city, all this new foods and your brains going, Yeah, 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 give me all the new information. But if something negative happens in the midst of all that, that gets written in, like you said, at those really heightened, really vital moments. And it can be difficult to undo that. And this happened to you with the spider incident. And I thought that was really interesting because I hadn't seen it written that way before. And I'd love if you'd share this.
0: Yeah, so the basic premise is this neurons that fire together, wire together. That's Hebb's law of neuroplasticity, meaning it was discovered that you could have, um, a choreography of neural activity over here. That means something like, um, this correlates to a perception or the blinking of your eyes or your heart, everything in your body, physical, emotional, mental has a correlating neural activity in a particular section, right? So this network over here is firing up because I'm having an experience. What was discovered with Hebb's Law is that if you link simultaneously, if you couple in a totally unrelated experience or stimulus at the same moment that something else is firing up, the brain's job is to be efficient. And the brain says, hey, these two things are happening at the exact same time. I bet you they're important to each other, whether they are or not. And then the brain goes, you know what? I got you. I'm going to make this easier for you tomorrow. Clearly these two things are important because they're happening at the same time. I'm going to link them. I'm going to have their dendrites reach towards each other so that two networks separated can become one. That's Hebb's law of neuroplasticity. So let's go now to, um, the fact that these networks, the more you use them, then grow their reach. So now you've got one network, one network separate happening accidentally or intentionally at the same time, one large network. You use that enough, it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and starts reaching towards other networks, giving more and more information into the one thing that you were doing. So let's go now go to the spider story. Let's say You have a very scary incident, or let me back up. Your mind is on fire with all the new stuff, right? This is the camping story, you know, first camping trip. You are so excited. It's the first time you're a little child your family's together. It's all the excitement of the family vacation. We're getting in the car, we're driving, we're having a new experience and it's all the heightened smells, the smell of the woods, the smell of the campfire. And then it's the new activities, putting up a tent for the first time and roasting marshmallows and then getting into your new sleeping bag. Everything is on fire because it's new, which means you're getting those dopamine hits which technically means your brain is in a heightened state of learning. It's learning and paying attention and placing a value on everything in your sensory field because it's all new and you're creating um memory of this in the live moment. And then you get into your sleeping bag and you lay down on your pillow and suddenly, since your brain has been all alerted and on fire all day, you feel something crawl across your face and you realize it's a spider. And suddenly, this heightened state of learning now learns that we capstone the day with the hugest dose of fear mm-hmm. we could ever have. And now that fear has linked to everything we were experiencing that day. So now we've got. Campfire smell, taste of marshmallows, putting up a tent, now laced with fear. (sniffs) They happened close in time. In fact, they might have happened as you were going to bed, rehashing all the great things you did that day. And now this fear dose sort of, it's like throwing a bucket of paint onto a wall. It is now colored that color. And so as if that were bad enough, that we could hijack an entire experience with one a fraction of a second. Now, because that thing grows with use, if I think about that spider a little bit more, a little bit more, I now expand it from camping with my family to camping in general? Ugh, spiders. And then, you know, maybe years later, I'm asked to go on a camping trip. And maybe, maybe it's not the first thing on my mind or likely it is, but absolutely it will come up during the trip, particularly when I have to go to bed and I have to get back into that sleeping bag. And all of a sudden, this thing that happened decades ago is now right there because it has been linked to my experience of camping. Hebb's Law. This is the basis of like CBT therapy, Pavlovian training. You can link any external stimuli to any perception with intention and simultaneous timing. And if you repeat that enough, those two things become two sides of one coin. And so there's a doorway in. You want a dog to salivate at the sound of a bell, then you make the dog salivate over food, and you ring the bell at the same time. And you only have to do that a few times before the bell gets the dog to salivate in the absence of food. But not just that. It is no longer that particular tone of the bell. It is now any tone in that scale that had never been played for the dog that can get the dog to salivate. We grow the set of all things by association to then trigger what it links to. This is both a curse, if you don't know about it, and a tremendous superpower, like an absolutely tremendous superpower to know that my posture, what I smell, what I see, what I taste, what I think, what I feel all link to my current time experience if I'm having them at the same time. So you can condition yourself to moods and states of being if you know this. If you know every time you laugh at your favorite show... Maybe you want to sniff some lavender at the same time. And so during a day when you're super depressed, maybe you want to put a little drop of lavender on your wrist and suddenly you're overwhelmed with, um, a little bit of that laughter. I mean, this kind of linking and sinking can make or break states of being. And, and so these are the stories that explain this really heady process of dendritic branches growing towards each other through simultaneous neural activation. And, um, you know, it's to me, there is a scientific explanation for all of the things we don't have words for our feelings, our states of being. And I, I just feel like they're really two sides of the brain. You know, I've got this side of my brain going, what's the science? What's the science? And how do I make sense of it? But without the side of the brain going, what does that feel like in my body in real time? And how do I know it? Not how do I know it, but how do I know it? And to me, that's the union of the left and right hemisphere, rather than this segregated um, theoretical model of everything or or this uh, denial of data because I haven't felt it. Like there's, there's, it goes both ways. Where, where our left brain and our right brain are battling each other all the time.
1: Beautifully articulated, Lisa. Really, really beautiful. And and that's just a flavour of what the writing is like. So you reflect that in your writing all the time. I just wanted to unpack a couple of things. Um, you mentioned the superpower. So one one of the reasons I really wanted you on was one is that for you as the individual, you can change elements of your life, you mentioned there, the lavender, such a simple thing, but you can look for those instances. And you, you tell us how to do that throughout the book. But also, the opportunity in an organisation where many of our listeners are change makers, innovators, CEOs, the opportunity to rewrite the neuro neurological pathways of the organisation is massive. So if you can Write a uh, pathway to the future, and you know, rewrite old pathways. So if you're trying to change a legacy organization, you can do that. Using your methodology, that's that's what I really saw. And you know, we'll, we maybe we'll we'll explain what neurosculpting is before we give some of the exercises. But uh, I was reading, and uh, I thought of this. Um, do you remember the movie Ghost with uh, Patrick Swayze? And they do remember the scene where it's like with Demi Moore, and it's like, oh my, <laughs> and their pottery scene. I was like. I had that in my head, and, except it's a brain and you're sculpting your yes. own. <laughs> and it's like, uh, I, I'll rewrite my own pathways here. But, but essentially, like, that's it. Like, yes, the spider got written in there. But then over time, you've found a, a technique and a methodology to go, actually, you know what? Just as it can be written, it can be rewritten. I don't have to unwrite it. I can just write over that pathway again. And thanks to things like uh, the, the neuroplasticity of the brain Hebb's law means, you know, we're finding out more and more as time goes on, people used to think, you know, you know, by myelination by your mid 20s, it's all over game over, you're afraid of spiders, but you've uncovered that and you've unpacked it. And I'd love to if you'd share firstly, your definition of neurosculpting, and then maybe we would get into, for example, how to rewrite the pathway of the spider incident.
0: Yeah, so Neurosculpting at its basic level is a five-step process one takes him or herself through or a facilitator takes you through that feels like something between meditation, hypnosis, and creative storytelling. And that's kind of how I define it. And the five steps that the facilitator takes you through, they're mental steps each step is very specifically geared towards enhancing plasticity, meaning the brain's ability to learn, down-regulating resistance in the body and the mind physically, um, and then up-regulating crosstalk across the hemispheres. All of this boosts the neurological value you place on a moment because your perception perceives this is important because more of your bilateral experience is happening. Um, and then you have your doorway into the nervous system. And at that point you can edit, you can create patterns and value them, which means your, your body will remember them or you can edit old ones. And here's where the, here's what I mean by editing. And for this, you have to understand how memory works. Um, It is not true that you have an experience once and that's the memory. That's not how memory works. Memory works like this. You have an experience. That experience is fragmented into parts and pieces for storage. Parts of it are stored somewhere where the hippocampus can recollect it for declarative memory. Being able to say, I did that. Other parts of that memory are stored somewhere else for procedural recall, like riding a bike. You don't get on a bike and say, this is how I ride a bike. That's not declarative memory. It's procedural memory. Then there's implicit memory. Then there's associative memory. So we have all sorts of different memories. And so an experience in the moment is then fragmented into those parts and pieces. So when we remember, that's technically what we're doing. We're remembering. We're taking the members and we're reconsolidating them with hippocampal retrieval. And they don't all fit together perfectly. Like when we blew them up into fragments. So what we have to do in the moment we think we're remembering is we really instantaneously have to seamlessly glue all those fragments together into something that resembles the memory, or the first experience, but this is really version two. This is iteration two, and we call it memory. Now, if you've remembered something 20,000 times, then what you're actually doing is evoking the most recent consolidation. You're evoking iteration 20,000. So That is an active, live version. That's what you get to edit. You don't erase your past. In fact, the whole time you've been remembering anything, you have sort of been erasing your past. You've been fabricating ways it all has meaning in this current moment over and over and over again. So memory is an active process. So when we talk about editing, what we're saying is you can either remember your old patterns anew every day off the same unintentional script, or you can remember your experiences anew today and take a moment of focused intention and tweak the sharp edges so that that experience is glued together with less jagged edges. So maybe... You get a little less jarred in your body today. So, the editing process is by no means memory erasure. But if you do understand this, this thing about memory that it's a live organism that is in no way accurate oh, that's the hardest pill to swallow, right? It's not accurate. None of my memories are accurate. This is scientifically proven. This is why you have to defrag your computer, people, because it stops working accurately, precisely and efficiently because it keeps fragmenting everything and reconsolidating when you want to use it. It's the same with the brain. So we think these are our memories, but they're version, they're millions of versions away, iterations away from the first time that thing happened, laced with glue. That updates itself over time, which means I can choose to focus on different aspects of that memory. If I reconsolidate it right now, I can choose maybe to prep my body by breathing differently before I have a memory so that I'm already more regulated when having a sad memory. So it's not as jarring. It's not hitting my body already in a dysregulated state. I can change my environment. I can play amazing music while I choose to have certain memories. I can influence the way my current time experience of memories lands in my body. My body and mind will remember that coupling. Yesterday she remembered it while smelling lavender and listening to peaceful music, so it wasn't quite as jarring. That's version twenty thousand one. So then tomorrow I can access that version, breathe a little deeper, and maybe add some body softening to it. And over time, I can edit what that memory does to me. and no longer remember that as devastating. Now I remember it as, wow, look at what I learned from that. So the edit process is infinite. And this is a superpower. And when I realized that my response to stress was causing my seizures. I realized my response was a pattern that every time I remembered got stronger, better, faster, quicker, deeper, uglier, messier. So I decided I would hack in to the memory of my response pattern and file down some of those sharp edges. I would evoke my memory of a seizure halo while I'm comfortable and in bed and breathing regularly. And I would manage my body while I was remembering it. And and I did this over and over and over again in the hopes that someday when I had another seizure onset, I'd access version 20,001 and not 18,000, which was like the worst seizure I ever had. And so this is how editing works. And we can do it all the time all the time. We are doing it all the time. We just don't know it. And so I would rather know that I can put intention to the ways I hijack my body through memory and through future concern and worry, which is a a projection of memory. I would like to know that I have intention there. I have agency. And if I have agency there, I don't really need to blame the memory Or the person 20 years ago or the event, I don't even need to know why they did what they did or why I did what I did or what happened that I blocked out of my mind. All I need to know is that in this current moment, if I am having an experience that is not in present time, I can do a whole bunch of things to soften that and take agency over it so that I change the way that thing hijacks me in the future. And that's really what editing memories is to me um and so neurosculpting is the five-step process that does a whole bunch of things it gets you comfortable and safe enough first to even think about doing that it gets your brain really ready to do it it optimizes the way the brain can pay attention to the edit and then it gives you opportunities to anchor into noticing observing the changes and remembering those changes and accessing the most current version of that and that's what the process is
1: well, you know you're you're reminded me of um how we all see that showing up where people remember the same memory differently, you know, when you maybe you go on spring break with your kids, or with your friends, and people are kind of going, Hey, remember that time in the bar? And you're kind of going, that's not how it happened. <laughs> it totally happened differently, because everybody remembers it differently. And that that's exactly to your point that it's the last memory of the memory. And I, I thought it was so important to, like you said, about the agency, and, and this is why your work is so important that you can address it, you're not a victim to that past, don't let yourself be a victim, you can absolutely address it. But also, taking it back to the organizational level, like I said, you can rewrite the pathways of the organization. And I think this is why you mentioned creative storytelling, organizations and leaders are coming kind of on, why do I need to be a storyteller, that is why we need to change the pathways of the future paint a compelling vision, infuse it with a lot of energy and, you know, be emphatic about it, and people will more likely gravitate towards it. So that was so such an important thing. But I wanted to share, there's a friend of the show, a guy called Ed Hess, he's brilliant, he's a Darden professor, you'd love his work. He's a book called humility is the new smart. And he talks about addressing your own ego means that you will be less defensive when somebody else comes with new information to you. So for example, I'm sure you've had this maybe within your scientific community where somebody's really staunch left brain, and they're like, No, that's not possible. And you're bringing in new information, and they won't, instead of giving you the opportunity to speak and listening, their ego goes defensive. And when you're defensive, you're rigid, and you can't let the information in. And you had an experience. And that you met this council of elders and the council of elders addressed ego and they brought you back to a 12 year old self i'd love if you'd share this as a way to get into how to unpack ego
0: ego is such a tricky thing right we all want to know that everything we're doing in our lives matters to our survival which makes us the most important being on the planet right and in this seizure episode I had, that's what they were telling me. They were telling me, look, we're under the illusion that we're all separate. And as separate entities, I have to make sure I protect what's mine. And therefore, our ego need to protect ourselves um, doesn't just stop when we learn how to feed ourselves and find shelter, which is, you know, that's ego too. How do I keep myself alive, protect myself? But if it were to stop there, we might have an easier sense of communing. But we're under the illusion that we're separate. So ego doesn't stop at basic survival needs. It keeps going to, well, I need to prove that my beliefs are right, because if they're wrong, then uh uh-oh, I'm vulnerable. I have to prove my worth. I have to prove my value. I have to compete. I have to win. And so ego spirals into this lifelong, um, dance that is a colossal use of energy. And some of it is great, right? But some of it is a large waste of time, um, in having to prove so much of my existence. I mean, ultimately, if you think about it, why should anyone have to prove anything about their existence? You're here. You had your experiences. You have your emotions. They're real in your body. And I may not have to under, I don't need to understand where they came from or why. And I don't need to prove to you that they're wrong or right. I shouldn't have to do that. Nor should I have to do that about myself. But in the way we dance with ego, We do that. And here's what ego is going to do. It's going to say, well, since the brain is all about efficiency, then proving all of my patterns that I've created are important is paramount then. Therefore, this is for all the organizational leaders. This is why change management is critical to the growth of an organization because Change is perceived as a survival threat to the brain because the brain has to adapt versus predict. And this is very much a survival threat to the brain. This is measurably so. This is, you can say, a survival threat to ego. Change that devalues all the ways I've reached for my identity and definitions. So I can, I sometimes in my mind, couple ego with um, rigidity, right? And as, as an organization, you have to be innovative or you will go the way of the dinosaur. And unless you understand from a brain perspective what change can do. To an individual who is then networked into an organizational system, if you can't look at it from a brain perspective, you may devalue the need to help regulate your people and orient them towards that change with efficiency. That's all their brains want. And if you view your organization as a brain, then change management becomes imperative clear and your go forward steps are very clear. You must get the organization oriented to having their basic needs met. First and foremost, you must put the oxygen mask on them so that they trust you enough to take the next step forward. And so with change management, it is just without a brain structure to place an organization's performance into, I don't know how organizations have done it so well up to this point. I think a lot of organizations have into have been led by great leaders who intuitively know how to do this. Maybe didn't have the left brain language for it, um, but change is a survival threat to the brain. Simultaneously, it's candy to the brain. If your brain is resourced well, if your organization is resourced well, then it can thrive with change because it knows its basic needs are met. So the critical factor in personal change and in organizational change is to help the entity know, no matter what the great unknown is, I have my needs met. And then, of course, if we map that onto the state of the world right now, where most people don't know if their needs are met, that is a very tall order. And so when we are faced with change, the body and the ego run to predictive, familiar patterns. Who cares if they're uncomfortable and unhealthy? They're familiar. And familiar is gold standard reward To the brain. This is why something has to hurt way more for you to change it than a mild inconvenience. Because the brain is like, no, 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 no. I'm not resourced enough for that. Got to renegotiate everything my identity, my future plans, uh, the conversations I've had this past week. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to go back to this pattern. And I know it's destructive. But I know how to navigate that.
1: And coming back to vision then of the organization, my understanding is your brain will look for the last edit. So if you have rewritten that edit, or for example, if it's a future that hasn't happened yet, but you've visualized it time and time again, kind of like your experiences that you had, you know, they, they may have not happened in the physical realm, but they happened. And they were so visual and so infused with uh, emotion that they got carved and sculpted into your brain. And if we can do that as leaders in organisations, when the brain then goes to look for it, it will actually see the future vision and actually will gravitate towards that. That That's one of the things I really took out of, of your work. I didn't want to dwell on that, because I really wanted to share a couple of your exercises, because they're brilliant. And they're so practical and usable for all of us. And one of them was, uh, you you have the discovery journal throughout the book. So you tell you tell an incident that happens. To you you explain it beautifully with your beautiful poetic style. In what's the neuroscientific element happening here? What's going on in the brain neurologically, etc. And then you go, here's what you can do about it. And I just, we maybe have time for a couple of exercises that I'd love to share from the discovery journal. One of them was the expired exercise. I'd love to share that. And then um, I'm gonna jump right to the end of my notes because I I thought we'd speak for much longer. Um, I love the one where you rewrite and you go, okay, let's change from the rigid I can't approach to the I can approach.
0: The expired exercise, you know, Because we are remembering anew in each moment, uh, I believe we could perhaps set an expiration date on some of our patterns. And so for me, it was more about me playing with, let's say I have this old belief about myself um, or this old story, right? The world is dangerous or, you know, the environment is hostile, whatever my, my belief is. I could actually start writing down my beliefs about something or someone and I could start asking myself, okay, how much of that is true and when would I like for that belief to expire? And then I could start looking at, okay, what do I need to do to get that to its expiration date. And so to go back to what you said about future forward thinking, if you want the future to not be scary because it's unknown, then make the future familiar by practicing it. And that's how you can get to your expiration date of an old belief. You start practicing little edits to that belief or softening it, or you, you interrupt it with some... Different kinds of memories, and you you track your way to the expiration date of that particular belief. Um, I really love journal exercises because it takes everything that's in here and it puts it on a piece of paper. And there are so many exercises in that book. Um, and so the the other one you asked about was the I can't and the I can. So it'd be really interesting for you all right now to write down how many times today and tomorrow and then every day for the next 7 days you hear you you hear yourself say i can't and that may mean you need to have your journal in your pocket or that may mean at lunchtime you sit and you inventory your morning And then how many times you say I can and what those statements are. And then what I like to do, I always like to look at what does the paper show me at the end of the day, at the end of the week? Wow. Oh, 70% of of, uh, the weight lands in the I can't pile. Oh, I don't want that. So you have to start becoming aware of what's coming out of your mouth. Because here's the other thing about uh, the way the brain works and the way life works. It doesn't all just stay here in the head. If it comes out of your mouth, then your ears hear your voice say it, which is yet another reinforcement. And so you're practicing further the thing you're thinking by saying it. And if you're practicing it, you're going to get better at it. So you're going to get better at the I can'ts if you keep saying them. So the first step is is the inventory. What are you saying all day long that starts with I can't? Some of those might be good. Some of those might be really bad. And then what are the I can's? And how do you move the dial on that list? Well, you have to first make the list and you have to observe it. And then you have to get a little bit truthful with yourself and go, "Ugh, that's how much I'm saying I can't. And then you can start rewriting those I can'ts, literally write your, write the, um, sorry, my cat's going crazy. You can rewrite the I can'ts to softer I cans. You can actually put them into a new column. And so I, I like to put things on the journal, and then I like to use the journal to create the new statements or affirmations that I'm going to use in my meditation, and so that's kind of how I use those journal exercises.
1: Beautiful. And, and the book is so packed full of them. There was one uh, quote I'd love to just quote, because I absolutely love this for the, those change makers that listen to the show. And then I'd just love to hand to you and just your parting message for everybody listening. But I love this quote, and I shared it on Twitter, and I know you saw it there. I love this because it's, when, when you have a vision, and and this happened all of us uh the people who are closest to you often will be the ones who who try to bring it down and and they don't want you to change because maybe it reflects upon them. Maybe if you change, you'll leave them. There's so many reasons others hold us back from our change. But I love this quote that you said, you said, at each of the crossroads, I stubbornly dug my heels into my idealistic stance even more, wanting desperately to prove that all my dreams were actually attainable. I wanted to rip off the fear based blinders I perceived others wore. It amazed me to see that those beloved pragmatists in my life tried to burst the dream bubbles I kept inflating. I'm sure that it was not their intention. But that was my perception. I loved how you phrased that. And that's just an example of the beautiful language you use out there. So my message, my parting message there, and I'm going to let you finish the show is do not let others burst your dream bubbles. Absolutely go after those dream bubbles and you can rewrite your futures but I'd love you to to finish with your party mess and Lisa before you do how can people find you where can they find your work your books I know you have a team of facilitators who bring people through neurosculpting where can they find you
0: They can find me at neurosculptinginstitute.com they can find me at neuropraxis.com which is a library of usable meditations like an app and um you can email info at com and ask us questions. Um, and then, of course, anywhere on social media. What I would love to leave all of you with today is something that I tell my students and clients all the time. No matter what emotions, strengths, deficits, hardships, traumas, joys, no matter what you are carrying and how you are dealing with it, whether that has been positive or negative, you are not broken. Never is there a time when you are broken. And when I say that, I don't mean there, you shouldn't feel broken. Plenty of us feel broken or we feel hopeless or helpless, but because the brain is neuroplastic by design, that literally means with the right resources or practices or daily work, you have the capacity to change that to small and large degrees. So why wouldn't you dive in and see how much you can actually affect change? So you're not broken. You're just highly efficient in all the ways that no longer serve you
1: beautiful and thank you for coming back from that near-death experience to share your wisdom and your knowledge from whatever realm you went to and for pursuing that dream and keeping the promise with yourself that you made author of neurosculpting a whole brain approach to heal trauma rewrite limiting beliefs and find wholeness lisa Wimberger. it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you very much
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.